We are going through Lamentations, five weeks, five chapters. Today is chapter three. I'm going to read verse 14 through 26, pray, and then Anthony is going to be bringing God's word for you this morning. What's your title today? Learning Lament. Isn't that the title of week one? Every week? Well, I'm going to change it up next week (laughs) to something different than Learning Lament. Something non-alliterated. Just read the scripture. It's fitting that he's having me start with, I have become a laughing stock of all people. Thanks. Yeah. But this book is actually sad, so let's give attention to God's word. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance is perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, my, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Now, fathers, we turn our hearts and attention towards your word. We ask that we would see this story a bit more clearly, and we would get a a bit of a fuller glimpse of you. And in that, we might follow our Savior, Jesus. And so, would you help Anthony as he brings forth your truth Mm -hmm. and your gospel? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So how are you all doing in this sort of uh, sad slog through the book of Lamentations? Well, good news is, as we've already read this morning, there's some really pleasant and delightful words to consider this morning, which we'll be uh, considering. To begin with, uh, in his book, uh, Prophetic Lament, Sung Chan Ra Uh, explains a little bit about what Lamentations 3 is all about. He says, Lamentations 3 reveals the heart of a prophet who offers a personal lament on behalf of the community. Therefore, as you may have noticed in the reading, the account of Jerusalem's fall pivots from uh, third person to the first person's uh, singular standpoint. This is a really important distinction in the language shift, and it's why we really enjoy reading the Bible and understanding the grammar, because there's something really powerful learned in this grammar shift. Uh, Jeremiah's cry is still uh, the collective cry of a city. It's still a collective thing happening. However, 
In this first-person perspective, the prophet shows us the suffering uh, of, of his people is now taken on a very personal level. It's, it's, it's hitting him on a personal level. And like I said last week, which we will touch on today, is that right lament, when we understand the book of Lamentations rightly and we learn lament rightly, you'll understand that lament is always personal. If we understand Jesus, if we understand the gospel, we'll understand that lament is always uh, personal. And in fact, in a personal perspective, the in the first 20 verses, the prophet paints a picture of deep personal suffering, particularly his pain, uh, which has been distributed by the hand of God, which we touched on last week. And I'm surprised that this many people came back for another dose. Um, but in uh, chapter 3, you sort of get, a, get uh, the scope of the prophet's suffering when you read in the beginning of, of verse 16 through 18, I'll read it to you again. It's, he says, but, but get this, get this perspective, get this pain in the prophet. He says, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of, of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. I don't think you can get any lower and more desperate than, than that. The suffering of the city is so great that the prophet's happiness and hope have met their expiration date. It's not a good thing when the prophets have lost hope. It's not a good day when the prophets have lost all of their happiness. Jeremiah is under the impression that God is indifferent to his cries, and therefore he is utterly despondent and depressed. I think it's important to you know, read a scripture like that and note that God's people do get despondent and depressed. God's people do, in fact, face suffering to, on such a degree that they don't know where, perhaps, God is in the midst of it. Deep suffering, it can raise this question of whether or not God is actually there. And perhaps you're here this morning in that place, wondering, where is God in this particular pain in my life? As I suffer, suffer, do I see the Lord? Do I see his hand? Do I see him in the midst of it? And like I said, uh, much of the Psalms, a third of the Psalm is devoted to these kinds of questions. I was reading in Psalm 42 this morning. I didn't put it up there for you, but I'll, I'll read to you just a snippet of the suffering of, of uh, uh, perhaps is what is David he says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And here is, here's verse 3. It's so interesting. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. 
while they say to me all day long, where is your God? How many of you have been there where your tears are your food? And there is no comfort. And there is no way to wrap your mind around why and, and, and see the, the Lord's goodness in it. I love Lamentations because it's real. It's real in the nitty-gritty of, of where we happen to be at, at in life sometimes. Sometimes our tears are our food. Yeah. Just thinking about a lot of things there, and I will continue. But there's a really beautiful thing going on in chapter 3. Thank God. Thank God. Uh, because as Jeremiah cowers in the ashes, he stops to clutch them for a moment. And he begins to sift through those ashes. And in verse 20, we get this beautiful proclamation and remembrance. He says, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Thank God that in this decimated perspective, this this cloudy situation, we have a, a ray of light. You know, last week we were squinting to see the goodness of God And the gift of chapter 3 is that it bursts through in in beautiful light. For the first time in a long time, the prophet is now in possession of a renewed hope. And so we can lose hope and we can get despondent and depressed, but we can also get a renewed hope. And that's what the prophet is showing us. Really, I guess the question is, how did he get there? How did he arrive at that place? From from heartbreak to hope. Because that's what we want. We want that when we're going through grief and heartache and suffering. How do we get from heartache to hope? Well, according to the text, the prophet uh, shows us, and if this is Jeremiah, Jeremiah allows us and allows himself to sort of be taken back to school so to speak. I don't, I don't think prophets had, a, you know, seminary like, you know, some people do or schools of ministry or, you know, um, you know, academic settings like that. But whatever it was, whatever notebooks or scrolls that he had to, to you know, wrap his mind around, I think, I think Jeremiah went back to the basics or theology 101, if you didn't catch it in the text, it, it, Jeremiah actually touches on the immutability of God. He talks about the immutability of God. What is the immutability of God? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'll, I'll tell you. 
A.W. Pink gives, in my opinion, a really great definition, saying God is immutable in his essence. His nature and being are infinite, and so subject to no mutations. There never was a time when he was not. There never will come a time when he shall cease to be. God has neither evolved, grown, nor improved. All that he is today, he has ever been and ever will be. I am the Lord, I change not, is his own unqualified affirmation. He cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Altogether unaffected by anything outside himself, improvement or deterioration is impossible. He is perpetually the same. He only can say, I am that I am. He is altogether uninfluenced by the flight of time. And this is my favorite line. There is no wrinkle upon the brow of eternity. And therefore, his power can never diminish, nor his glory ever fade. This is who God is. And some of the best words we can, you know, squash together to give us a perspective. This truth, it applies to every single one of God's characteristics. And in context of what, what I'm talking about this uh, morning, this directly uh, impacts the idea of the steadfast love of the Lord. This is a thing you can count on. Every day, every day that you rise, you can count on the goodness of God, the steadfast love of the Lord rising in the world as well. We may not be able to understand or see it, but it doesn't change the fact that it is happening. That's where Jeremiah finds hope, is not in his circumstances, not in the perspective of what is taking place in Jerusalem, but in his theology, in his faith, in the character and the quality of God. And it's so important when we, find, when we face devastation in life is to be able to find the goodness of God in our minds and our hearts when there is none to be found anywhere else. What ultimately settles Jeremiah's troubled heart is this idea that no matter what the people of God have done in order to break their covenant with God, it does not and it cannot change God. God's love and mercy is infinite. He loves his people in perpetuity. That means, to quote the great theologian Michael Squint's Pelodorus, forever, forever. You guys know the great theologian Michael Squint's Pelodorus? You need to watch Sandlot if you, okay, yeah. Sandlot is a brilliant young child. But what we learn from, from the prophet, from Jeremiah, we're reminded of our human condition before God. We are, we are wishy-washy, but God is a rock. We are, we are unstable, and he is always solidified. Unshaken. We are, we are so shaken and and moved by much. And there is the Lord, constant, consistent, in his steadfast love. 
It's what we have to turn to when we are in lament. In celebration as well, but especially when you can't see any goodness around you. This is the facts. We are not always faithful to God. An honest assessment of self will always uh, reveal as much. But we also have to have that honest assessment of who God is. As children, we must remember that this means no matter what we've done, no matter what has been done to us, no matter how much shame has suffocated our lives, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So you may be sitting here thinking, I am or I'm in a hopeless situation. I implore you to just get a glimpse of the goodness of God in his steadfast love that is ever consistent. It's outside of who we are and what we've done. And that's so helpful. Going to school, so to speak, back to the basics, has totally renewed Jeremiah's hope and perspective. In verse 31 in particular, he says, For the Lord, listen to his tone, listen to the tone change. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Guys, we don't get God. We do not understand when he, we don't understand his anger when he's angry. We don't know how to process and make sense of that. And we certainly don't understand how to make sense and process his compassion, kindness, and love. And thank God he doesn't do it the way we do it. Right? Amen. Right? We should say amen to that. Like I said last week, if we were in charge of uh, uh, doling out retribution, this, this earth would be scorched, right? It'd be all little, little craters all over planet earth where people just blew up because we were being little monsters. The beautiful thing about chapter 3 is that Jeremiah has allowed suffering to dig a deeper well in his heart in terms of his understanding of God. And it's a great lesson to learn here. You see, suffering, and this is important, if we let it, if we let it, it can accomplish something in us uh, that, pleasure, that pleasure would never be able to achieve. But you have to not only invite that, but you have to embrace that, and you have to let it change and transform. It can, it can also do damage and lead you in a deeper uh, depression and despondency, but it also can give you a gift. Robert uh, Browning Hamilton, he has a a poem that I think uh, does a really good job at giving us um, an understanding of this concept. It's a a beautiful poem. I'll I'll recite it to you now. He says, I walked a mile with, with pleasure. She chattered all the way but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and never a word uh, said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Suffering does offer us an opportunity to deepen our understanding of God's great compassion for the world. 
in his goodness that is steadfast and constant. But we, ha- we have to choose to embrace that, receive that. And that is the gift of sorrow. Never saying a word, but learning so much in the process. Suffering deepened Jeremiah's understanding that no matter what, God is with him, God is for him. Perhaps when nothing else is with him and for him, God is still there. And what I want you to notice this morning is how this, this impacts him. How this, how this right lament, lamenting in the correct way, it, it is changing how he sees the collective suffering of the people around him. Verse 40, he says, um, beginning there, he says, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. You see what the prophet is doing here? He is joining into the collective chorus of the cries of the people of God. He is, he is participating in their suffering, even though he does not bear a responsibility to it. He's, he's not done anything to deserve the same consequence. In prophetic r- r- lament, Chan Sung uh, Chan Ra says this, and he really does a great job of giving us a really broad understanding of the context here. He says, despite Jeremiah's relative innocence to the rest of the community, he embraces his role as a prophet who speaks for his people, offering a lament on behalf of the people and speaking the experience of the Jerusalem community. Jeremiah has faithfully spoke Yahweh's words and has remained uh, faithful both to Yahweh and his covenant. Yet, Jeremiah claims a personal connection to the sins of his community. What affected Jerusalem on a corporate level has affected Jeremiah on a personal one. I just want you to think about that for a second. Settle and see the significance and the power of what is on display in understanding right, right lament in this context here. Jeremiah has been a faithful prophet. He has faithfully proclaimed the word of God and even the, 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 the consequences of breaking covenant. He's faithfully done that. As enemies approach and as they, they come against him, he is faithful to do that. He is, he is consistent with the covenant. He did not break any, any promises. He's been faithful. And yet here he is lumping himself in with the guilty. He's innocent, and yet he's lumping himself in with the guilty. Does that, tell, does that remind you of someone? Right lament. Lamentations tells us that, it, that right lament is always personal. And this is a really hard 
pill to swallow in a hyper-individualistic culture. It's a really hard pill to swallow in a hyper-individualistic culture. In fact, like sharing, sharing in someone else's guilt, even though we are innocent, doesn't make sense in the world we live in, in, in humanity. The culture war, wars have told us this. Our innate humanity tells us this. We, we are busy laying blame. We're big old finger pointers. Right? You know, we're big old finger, finger pointers. Not me, you, right? That's, that's what culture, humanity tells us. And that's why I think Pontius Pilate is such a compelling figure in Scripture because uh, he, he, he tells us what we all want to do. Right? We all want to wash our hands of anything and let that be somebody else's business, somebody else's problem. That resonates. And again, I'm not dismissing the responsibility of the guilty. You want to go through a real sad sermon, listen to the one on chapter 2, and we'll talk about responsibility. But here in chapter 3, there's a, there's a shift. And it's, we have to see that shift because it's so beautiful and it tells us so much about the heart of God. The emphasis here you see is that we, we do not want to grieve or carry a burden, especially when we do not share responsibility to it. And yet Jeremiah's posture shows us that there's a better way. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, throughout a little, little cl- cl- crumbs of clues, um, of course he points us Uh, to the one, to Jesus, who is the perfect embodiment of this attitude. If we want to know what it looks like to embrace humanity on the level of lament that the Lord would invite us to, then we look to the perfect human who walked planet Earth. His name is Jesus. And he shows us. He shows us what it looks like to offer your life, your love, to guilty, even though you are innocent. Hundreds of years later, after these words were written, Jesus would one day approach the city of Jerusalem, and you know what he would first do? One of the first things he would do? He would just look at the collective sin of humanity, and he'd weep over it. He wasn't pointing fingers, saying, look at all these idiots. Look at all these morons. Let's condemn them. No, they're already condemned. They're already dead. And Jesus, what a beautiful example. It is the example of how you look at a a people who have turned their back on God. His own people and, and the reprobate mind that never can grasp it to begin with. Jesus shows us that first approach is just to see it and cry over it. And that's why the challenge is to always try tears instead of anger. And this is why I love Lamentations, because I, I want to choose anger. You know, I, I do want to, I, I wouldn't mind dropping a few bolts of lightning. I wouldn't mind that. But Jesus shows me and reminds me that that is not his heart for me. It's never been his heart for me. It's always been goodness. I wake up knowing my guilt, knowing my shame, expecting some, some righteous judgment to fall upon me. And what do I find instead? I find the gift 
of the goodness of God's steadfast love present and pouring out into my life. So how can I be, how can I be a, a wicked servant who would ever go out and, and, then, and be, and, and even hope for condemnation on, on the guilty when God has not treated me as such? Jesus, he approaches Jerusalem and weeps. Jesus, of, of everyone, he could have said, this is not my problem. This is, this is not my issue. This is not my problem. I'm, I'm holy. I'm perfect. But Jesus didn't do that. And that's, that's why we're here. That's why all of us are here. That's why we come on Sunday. Because Jesus, Jesus didn't do that. Completely innocent. Jesus Christ goes to the cross showing us that he takes the suffering of humanity very personal. And even though we reject him, and never once stopped the redemptive work of sacrifice and atonement. Again, and again, and again, and again, he is faithful to demonstrate to us that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And that's why it's so good to gather as his people, because we have hope. Even though there's hopelessness around us, even though there's heartbreak around us, even though there's deep, deep, deep suffering in the world that we see and that we experience, we can go back to school, so to speak, and just remember that God is still good. He is with us and for us in all of it. And perhaps that is the reminder for many of, this, many of us this morning is to revisit our first love. Right? To, to, to remember our first love and remember the sweetness of Jesus entering in when we needed him, when we were cognizant of our need of him. May we remember that when we forget our need of him. This is how Jesus enters into the collective suffering of the world. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's, that's why it's so, such glorious, good, bright, shining, holy, majestic, wonderful, beautiful news. That's why. And Jesus, as we embrace him, he will change the way we see collective sin in the world. He will change the way we see suffering in the world. It doesn't make it less painful and less problematic. No, Jesus just changes the way we see it and the way we enter into it. You see, if we, if we truly love God we truly f follow him, then we're going to follow him into the exact same places that he ventured into in his human life. And that is into, bottom line, into the brokenness of humanity, armed with the steadfast love of God, the mercy that never ceases. Never once, to, we never once get to the gospel story where we read Jesus saying, he answers to a group of people, and he just says, you know what? I don't like these people. I'm, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> Thank God we don't ever encounter that story, because that means it could be true about you or me, and I don't, I don't want to believe that. So, you know, God bless you guys, because today you get the sweetness of God in chapter 3. Ch chapter 4 stinks. 
Uh, Chapter 5, it stinks some more. (laughs) But have you noticed that one of the verses, like so many of the verses that we quote in Scripture, one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible that is so often quoted and embraced, which it should be, but one of, those, one of those, these beautiful gems of, of Scripture is planted in the muck. That is the gospel, guys. That is the glorious good news of, of Jesus. And may we, let, may we embrace that. Continue to let it change us and our perspective on humanity. I'll close with a, a, a quote and some questions. And this won't be a long close, John. I promise. Okay, I promise. <laughs> um, another quote from, from Ra. Um, it's from a book entitled Forgive Us. He says, at this moment in history, the American church is often ridiculed or portrayed as unforgiving and ungracious. Could the church offer a counter-narrative not of defensiveness or derision, but of authentic confession and genuine reconciliation. It is antithetical to the gospel when we do not confess all forms of sin, both individual and corporate. The reason evangelicals can claim to be followers of Jesus is because there has been an acknowledgement of sin and seeking of God's grace through Jesus Christ that leads to the forgiveness of sins. May we be known to walk in congruence with the kingdom of God. Yes, we're not wiping away responsibility, guilt for sin. We're embracing that confession. But in the same, in the same step, in the same process, we are exuding and exemplifying the kingdom of God in his steadfast love and kindness that has been so crucial to changing and transforming our lives, but also could be crucial in changing and transforming the lives of those who are lost. But we have to embrace a different way. Yeah, it's humble. It's a turning the other cheek. But I I heard a dude say something about turning the other cheek that was kind of cool and important. Anyway, at the end of the day, the gospel should. The gospel should mine new levels of love, compassion, for the collective cries of humanity as we understand the heart of God in the world. Do we? These are the questions. Maybe bouncing back to the beginning. Are you suffering this morning? Are you suffering? Are you, are you despondent in deep sadness? Depressed? Wondering where, is, where God is in all this? Remember that immutability of God. Remember his steadfast love and that he never changes. Embrace and hold on to it even though there's no re- there are no other reasons uh, in your perspective to, to do such. Number two, ask yourself the question, ask myself the question every day, is suffering making me sweeter or bitter? And what about the gospel am I remembering? What about the gospel am I forgetting? Depending on your answer, you can find answers in that question. 
And here's another thing. What ways, in light of Lamentation chapter 3, in what ways can we engage in the collective pain of the people of our world? I'm, I'm sure we could all say there's, there's a lot of avenues I take to wash my hands of it. There's a lot of ways and, um, you know, a lot of choices I make in, in, in that, that are crucial in, in keeping me at a distance and away from the problem. But I'm asking you, how does Lamentation chapter 3, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ actually inform you and how can it change how you perhaps approach the collective cries of the world? Because at the end of the day, John 3.16 still is true. It's still our modus operandi, if you will. God so loved the world. And if he so loved the world, shouldn't those who call themselves little Christs, Christians, shouldn't we follow suit? So what are ways, ways in which we can engage in the collective Christ in healthy, God-honoring, gospel-oriented ways? And I'll leave on this last note. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness in the midst of all that is gross in the world, um, your goodness that is in the midst of my, my gross, desperate, needy heart. You're so good. And today, Jesus, we celebrate your love that doesn't really make sense to a human mind. A love that would, uh, although innocent, step in and take the sword for our guilt. That even on the cross that you would cry out, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Words of reconciliation when, when insults are hurled your way. May we understand your words in your life and learn your way more deeply as your children. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have um, ignored and even broken covenant. And God, thank you that your goodness rises again over our lives. Uh, Jesus, we love you, and we pray all these things in your precious name. Amen.